Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about entertainment and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I'm the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And it's been about a month since we last uh, since we last had a podcast. We were kind of uh, interrupted by a combination a combination hack week wine vacation. Yeah, that's um I'm like I was like totally willing to follow my sword for this one to be perfectly honest. Like sorry guys. <laughs> I needed to go to Napa with a friend from high school and do a bunch of drinking. <laughs> like, no, I would love to see you on a wine tour like that because I mean you did that. I mean if you haven't seen Liz's Hangover Cure video, <laughs> it is a masterpiece of 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 science document documentary work, I guess. But uh but I was I was actually in Sonoma uh, not not long before that, just for a weekend with my mom. I was there for a wedding, and I was like, after three days of going to like two or three wineries a day, I was like, oh my god, I never want to drink wine again in my life. Like I've I like it gets you so fatigued because it's hot mm-hmm. and you're running around just drinking wine all day and eating crackers and yeah. I mean, that's like that was like one of the things that was like toughest right is that they're not actually serving you a lot of food and i think they expect you to spit the wine but like why would i do that oh i never spit the wine (laughs) no me neither no um so it was like it was it was it was like it was a lot of fun while it was happening and then after like the last day where i think we hit four wineries in one day uh on the silverado trail um i woke up the next morning and i just felt bad man <laughs> like like yeah it's like um, a week-long hangover it's like it all it all gets compounded into one oh my god it was not good I was like I don't know if I can even get in the car to go back without throwing up <laughs> like <laughs> well we're gonna talk a lot about um throwing up and uh and and in general you know, the, the effect of, of various substances on our bodies we, uh, we sure are this is a very special episode a very special episode <laughs> of verge esp um but first i wanted to take like two minutes two minutes to talk about the vmas i probably will go i don't know i i i, I strongly suspect i will be on Vergecast. This week talking about VMAs, uh, but I'm not really sure. Well, but, I mean, that piece that you wrote about Lana Del Rey's, you know, or not Lana Del Rey, I'm sorry, Miley Cyrus's um, on-camera implosion, I think was pretty on on the money. I mean, I feel like that really struck a nerve with people. That was sort of what people felt like was happening. So yeah. by all means, wax Here, poetic. Well, here's the thing about writing a piece like that is that first of all, a lot of people are like, wait, I thought you liked Miley Cyrus because I was kind of the main Miley Cyrus correspondent for uh, like a year or so uh, at at, at Grayland for a while. Anytime any Miley news would come out, I would be the person hitting it. Uh, And I thought I thought I thought she was interesting at first. And I still stand by. I, I can't really throw that much shade at like the revealingness of her costumes because I actually think that the way she plays with how to present herself sexually is still kind of interesting and there's nobody else who's doing that necessarily so there's no I don't have any knocks on her about that in and of itself I just think um it's really I do actually feel a little bit like a conspiracy theorist about this and then of course there's the why is this on the verge um (laughs) About anything, really. Uh, the VMAs. Uh, VMAs are a particularly extreme example of that. Uh, about that. I mean, the VMAs, for all their silliness and just meaninglessness, and how much stuff is staged. Like, oh, we're gonna have Taylor Swift and Nicki Minaj make up in a beautiful musical number, a surprise musical duet. Um, there's that, uh, which is also a kind of science. It's a it's a kind <laughs> of cultural technology to steal a phrase from uh, from uh, K-pop, uh, but uh, the VMAs are, especially now, this is like a recent thing, are kind of an award show about the internet. The videos that are nominated for things, the videos that are being highlighted, uh, the artists that are being celebrated there are, it's not Grammys where it's just, you know, supposed, purportedly like who did the best music this year. It's about the stuff that got our eyeballs. Those aren't the best music videos of the year, but they're the ones that you can remember. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember when that dropped on Twitter and everybody was freaking out because Beyonce was wearing a shirt that said kale on it. So in a way, like, this is this is sort of like the Oscars of 
like memes, the internet the basically. internet music Oscars. Yeah, I mean, how many things, like how many memes and just like internet culture things have sprung up out of various parts of various things that were nominated for awards at the VMAs? Like, I I I think it's worth while at least right. to talk about. I, and well, and I also think that like, I mean, to talk about. Nikki snub you can't not talk about for instance like debuting um a single on title which is a really new channel a really new outlet but like in some ways necessitated by the fact that mtv hasn't played a music video in 10 years yeah yeah you know i I mean it's totally not i mean the reason i guess why it feels irrelevant is that mtv is still the channel that is doing the show when it should be youtube that is the channel that or vivo that's doing a show like this because they're they're the ones who make the money off of these plays and you know the content id for all these songs and you know now that those are the channels like i don't think that mtv like for the two hours a day that mtv plays music videos at like three in the morning uh like those those plays i don't think are going into um like the algorithm for the charts or anything like that. But Vivo sure as heck is and YouTube is. Right. Uh, well, and also they're like, again, if you're playing music videos for two hours at three o'clock in the morning, nobody's watching them. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. you're putting you're putting them essentially in your dead time, which is fine. You can do that. Um, yeah. if that makes room for your boring reality television shows or whatever. But like, oh, we can have a whole other discussion about this sometime. But the this they're actually more into like scripted shows now. Like that's where oh, they good. put their chips, which oh, is like, geez. oh, like they keep like they had all these cast members from these MTV shows they've never heard of before on the red carpets. Like, oh yeah, the girls from Girl Code, my my TV best friends that I've literally never seen in my life. Um. Which is not true. I watched Girl Code before, but um, only only for research. <laughs> um, anyway, that was all I really wanted to say about VMAs. Um, I feel like I, there might be a situation in which I touch back on the the crux of the reason that I don't like Miley Cyrus uh, right now, but uh, because it kind of has to do with some stuff we're going to talk about later. But I want to move on for all right, right now. So let's um, move on. Yeah, uh, to something else from TV. Um, Mr. Robot, which I'm just going to be super clear, a show I have not seen, but as I understand it, it's about a hacker. It's extremely paranoid and he may or may not be hallucinating a lot of what's happening. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, I I don't want to spoil anything. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of talk about how, how much he is, uh, hallucinating his, his friend, Christian Slater, a.k.a. Mr. Robot, who is sort of um, the orchestrator of this big, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? I mean, just like these, the hackers that are conspiring to bring down a giant corporation. So he's uh, like the mastermind of the network. Christian Slater is like the person who's brought together all these different hackers to do this, to pull off this this giant thing and basically alleviate everybody's student debt. That's actually the a, a main part of the of wow. their motives that's very um, au courant yeah yeah uh it's uh it's a the funny thing to me and i've tweeted about this is that on my feed which is filled with a lot of tv critics um uh you know there there came a certain point after two or three weeks probably the third week the third episode of of mr robot was pretty insane uh where everybody was like, oh, this is this is the show. Like, this is, like, forget True Detective. That didn't work out for us. <laughs> uh, but Mr. Robot is is our, our favorite show. This is the show we are crowning as, as the show of the year. Um, and, you know, I was seeing all this and, like, really seeing this sort of critical consensus come together. <laughs> and then at The Verge, I'm like, hey, who's watching Mr. Robot? Um, and, you know, like... We've got a lot of people with broad interests. A lot of them uh, involve hacks and and um, info security and stuff like that. And it's just funny to me how nobody at The Verge is into the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if it's just that it's too close to home or what. Um, I always wonder about that with, like, critical favorites. And I see this as somebody, like, I understand that I am abnormal in that I don't watch a lot of television like I just don't and um, so so for me it's always like I'm always like a little bemused by sort of critical consensus because I see like all of these like gushing 
you know, articles. And I saw it with, with the first season of True Detective. I saw it with Mad Men, a couple of other shows. 30 Rock would be one of them. Where, like, you see, like, this, this intense love from critics and, like, the audience just isn't there. Like, it's yeah. just, you know, not, not in meaningful numbers. Yeah. And, like, one of the things that I always find myself wondering about is, like... When you make TV that critics like, I always wonder if it's TV that people appreciate, people who watch a lot of TV appreciate, right? Because, like, for me, right. I, don't, I don't watch a ton of it, right? right? So you could do something that's a really standard trope, and I would not notice. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah. But for TV critics, like, being able to, to know and then subvert the tropes is very important because the tropes are boring because they watch a lot of television, right? Yeah. And you're always, like, you're always defaulting to reading everything as talking about TV. Um, I think that's something that is exciting genuinely to me about Mr. Robot is that it's not, it doesn't really feel like it has that much of a relationship to the rest of television mm -hmm. in the way that the first season of True Detective felt to me. Um, and I think this is because it's, I mean, Sam Esmile is the, the creator of the show. He directed, um, I think he directed the first couple episodes. But, you know, I mean, they've had other directors come in for it, but it, it has maintained a really, really um, uh, kind of consistent visual style and tone that a lot of TV shows just don't, mm. they aren't able to because they have a different director coming on every week. Um, it was originally conceived as, as a feature film and uh, and then... I guess it was pitched or, or it, it was I forget who. Uh, yeah. Anyway, when it when it, it eventually became a series just because there was just, I guess, a lot to explore in it. Um, but you can kind of you can kind of it, it feels more like a movie. It feels more like a, a long movie that you watch over several weeks than a TV show. Um, so it's harder to compare. I mean, it's hard to compare to something like I think Breaking Bad is probably the thing you could compare it the most to just in terms of like how it feels like just kind of crazy and anarchic and stuff but um but yeah I I I enjoy it a lot um I mean an interesting thing happened this last week because the finale was supposed to be last week and uh then that the that shooting happened in Virginia, the on camera shooting mm -hmm. of the newscaster, which you wrote about, which was great. You, Thank everybody you. should read Liz's piece on that. Um, and they had to postpone. I mean, they didn't have to, but they chose to postpone the finale of Mr. Robot because apparently something similar to that happens in the finale episode. Uh, so we still haven't seen it. I don't know how it ends. Um but I thought that that was kind of a really interesting example of how, like, the place that that, that show exists. It's – I think a lot of people, The Verge, who don't like it are kind of maybe able to nitpick a little more about the technical ways in which it's not um, accurate. But I think, I think sociologically it seems pretty – like I don't really have any complaints about it. Nothing seems dated or like it's or like it's trying to be like super on trend or whatever or relevant. It's, it's just, just like being written by people who are absolutely saturated in other parts of our culture beyond the world of TV is what I hear you saying, right? Like Yeah. The fact that the they're I mean like it's 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 the same issue when I when I saw that they were postponing that I thought of Buffy, right? Like cuz there's um, that big season finale that they postponed after Columbine where mm. uh, graduation where a demon comes out of the uh, the high school and starts slaughtering students and so yeah. it was it was deemed you know I mean even though obviously um, a demon is not quite the same thing as um, the two students who perpetuated that that massacre Um in some ways, because because Buffy was a metaphorical show about being a teenager and all of the demons were the the, the physical incarnations that she had yeah. to slay of all of the demons we all have as teenagers. Um, there was something that felt very odd about that. So I would be I'm curious to know um, what your thoughts are going to be on that that finale, because if it's one of those things where it's like not quite the same thing, but could metaphorically be be taken as something relatively similar. Yeah, um, that that is. I don't know. That seems like something worth exploring. Yeah, I think uh, 
I mean, I have no idea. Nobody knows what the context of whatever the shooting is or whatever comparable incident is. Like, nobody knows what the context is. It isn't who's, like, the perpetrator of it, what characters are involved. Nobody really knows. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, my overall takeaway from the show, the reason I like it and the reason I also kind of I, – I don't take it too seriously, but at the same time, like, I've had nightmares – related to the show <laughs> like oh, it wow. gets it gets to you in that way um but i think it hits a tone that could so easily go off course because you're dealing with these um you know these like basically information terrorists who are very uh i mean the the name of the group is f society um it's like kind of they have imagery that's all and like a logo that's sort of similar to um, Anonymous. And they're talking about, you know, this corporation, which, you know, all of the corporations in our world that we read as as, as kind of pulling the strings in our our decisions and our, our, our way of life every day or have been all consolidated into this one cor- corporation on this show called E-Corp, which everybody calls Evil Corp. Mm. Um, and it's like the way that the 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 kind of rhetoric that that the the hackers use against this corporation and the 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 running narr- the running narration by the main character Elliot who's great he's played by an actor named Rami Malek um was really really good um the the it 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 seems like something at first that having lived like having having been a a tween or a teen in the nineties and like people talking about hackers and like the net and hackers and stuff like that and it's all like it seems very sticky um to be like oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna disrupt man we're gonna we're gonna hack into the the data and we're gonna you know like all the stuff that yeah. seems like it should be laughable but somehow this is coming at a time and like also perfectly timed with the Ashley Madison hacks and everything where all of the issues that the hackers are bringing up and the way that they talk about them and the way that it plays out in the story is like, yeah, actually, these are all things that I'm worried about every single day. So like, this is not like there's going to be people on rollerblades and data action sequences. Is that no, right? There's no diving into the computer to see all the wires and the ones and zeros connecting. There's and none there's, of that. There's, there's no sandstorm. Is that what I'm hearing? <sighs> Sadly, there's no, there's no Darude sandstorm. Uh, I wish, but yeah, no, I it, it rings true to me on a on a like cultural social level. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the technical stuff is fudged a little, but just so that stuff can happen. Yeah, but that I mean that that's any show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I don't I don't get upset at Orphan Black because that cloning technology did not exist <laughs> in the seventies. You know, like it's yeah, just yeah. like that's just part of the fictional world. Yeah. Like, it's a way to talk about something like, you know, some anxiety. Hypothetical. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which is like what all good sci-fi, which in a way, Mr. Robot kind of counts as sci-fi in a way because it's 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 um, yeah, it's it's suppositional, I guess. Mm. But um, but oh, so there's <laughs> to do the running thread of, of substances in this particular episode of our podcast. I mean, a lot a lot of. Um, the protagonist's struggles and um, uh, ups and downs are determined by his addiction to morphine. Oh, uh, wow. Which which he uh, he snorts and does like a very, very small amount of and then does um, – he also takes Suboxone to like counteract it so he won't become an addict. It's like very, very – it's very programmery, you know. It's like <sighs> I'm going to take this much of the substance and stay off of it. And then, of course, when things start to go badly, that plan doesn't work out for him anymore. Um, but uh, we put up a big feature today on the site, which uh, – Liz, do you want to tell us uh, – talk a little bit about it? I guess it'll yeah. be yesterday. If, or no, we're going to no. put up this podcast today. So it'll be today. It's today. Um, so, yeah. So – um, we have a freelancer, Jesse Guy Ryan, who wrote this really beautiful, thoughtful, personal reported essay um, about her brother's addiction. Uh, and her brother, she's seen him in person a couple of times over the last eight years and has spent uh, about two of those years in jail, um, not, towning, not, not counting the time that he was in county tra- uh, jail awaiting trial or the various times he broke parole. Um, but so she talks a little bit about how um, 
his his crimes, um, which were uh, larceny, breaking and entering, uh, possession of burglary tools, assaulting an officer, resisting arrest, were sort of fueled by his his drug and alcohol addictions. And um, you know, I know I know that we talk about um, we t- we talk about substances a lot in our culture, um, and, and and Miley talked about them a lot at the VMAs. Oh yeah, um, a lot to say about them. And one of the things that 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 does frustrate me a little is that like, you know, there's this very weird duality to how we talk about um, psychoactive substances, where it's like either it's a joke. And like a fun thing you do to get high or it's an addiction and like this very sort of dark thing um, that is that is heavily stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And there's not like a lot of discussion of the various sort of ways that that plays out in people's lives. And so what I love about this essay, uh, which you should all go read, it's called My Brother's Keeper, um, uh, is that it? you actually see the um, the way that addiction affects families and family members. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of sort of pieces of this you can pull out, right? Like, um, uh, some of the stigma has to do with the fact that for a very long time, in fact, most of human history, um, addiction, especially alcohol addiction was viewed as being a moral failing rather than an actual disease. Right. Um, and you see, you see echoes of that in, for instance, um, certain certain ways that AA presents itself like this is not true of all AA obviously um because it is decentralized and and you know there's there are there are groups for everybody yeah um but there are adherents of AA um the poet Mary Carr among them who believe that um if you are on any substance at all including an antidepressant you are not truly clean and one of the things that bothers me about this as somebody who really is interested in evidence-based medicine is that it seems to be the case that for some people who are addicted, there is um, a mental illness also taking place that right. is either making the addiction worse or making it harder to fight off. And so um, there, this very sort of black and white worldview where either you're on something or you're not doesn't quite work. And one of the things that I like about the the treatment program that's mentioned here is that they they do actually they do actually work with drugs that help yeah. people attenuate their addictions. And they they think about the ways that you because you have to support the whole person when when you're you're dealing with somebody who's recovering from addiction, right? Because like this is somebody maybe who hasn't had a sober relationship since they were right. 15 and doesn't know how to approach it. And well, like, that's like the whole point of a sober home is the sober living house is that you are taken away from a lot of those outside those outside influences that could knock you off course really early on. Right. And and but also it gives you a place to learn how to be a functioning adult without yeah. without the substances. Um, so this this particular rehab happens to be a lot longer. It's, I think, two years um, and most yeah. are 30, 60 or 90 days, which is very short when you're thinking about reprogramming human behavior, right? Like, yeah. how long does it take you to get rid of a bad habit? It takes me a while. Yeah. Um, and that's not even the addictive ones. That's yeah, just like, not you even know. the chemical one that <laughs> right. one that's affecting your brain. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that sort of rubs me the wrong way um, about Miley Cyrus's VMA's performance and weed is cool. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, as substances go, like, weed is relatively harmless, but there are absolutely people who have addictions and who struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there were some way that we could maybe make substances a little bit less glamorous um, right. or a less of a way of, like, professing one's rebellion, um, right. yeah. I feel like that would be tremendously helpful not only to people who are actually addicts, but also to people who potentially could become addicts if certain social stresses are placed on them, you know? Right. Um, I want to talk about this in a second. I want to backtrack really quickly to something you talked about, though, as far as AA, because um, you talked about you're not able to be, or they don't consider you clean if you're on an antidepressant, and I assume that goes for, like, methadone or something like that as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, Is that... A kind of because I know you know AA is pretty religious, really, and it like the way that it, it or it's like it's literature, I guess. Is. Yeah, well, so the the <laughs> uh, 
Bill, the the original, the founder of AA, was 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 drying out in rehab and um, may very well have hallucinated. Um, he had a religious experience, but he also was he had DTs, and I think I, I want to say he there was some substance that that they had given him as a part of treatment, and so he literally had a hallucination, hmm. um, and that sort of led to the founding of AA and to the idea of surrendering yourself to a higher power. And all of these things. And in fact, um, one, one interesting area of, of research right now is the idea that drugs like LSD, um, Ibogaine, and um, uh, psilocybin uh, might potentially be helpful to people who have substance abuse problems um, in, in changing their behavior and realigning sort of their perspective. That's super, super early work. It's only in a couple of people. It's not something that I feel confident saying, yes, this works. Um, But, you know, given the the founding incident of AA, it seems to me really ironic that people are unwilling to consider the treatment of the rest of the person. So, like, you know, like, um, the reason I bring up Mary Carr is that she had some super unkind things to say about David Foster Wallace, who is, uh, as some some folks know, a personal hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm that girl. <laughs> um, okay. It's a safe space. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but she had some super unkind things to say, like, about how she didn't consider him clean while he was on antidepressants. And, like, <sighs> if yeah. you're dealing with a person who has... comorbid disorders that's what they're called when they occur together is they're comorbid like um for instance uh depression and substance abuse Uh uh-huh if you don't treat the depression you really can't necessarily effectively treat the substance abuse either yeah Yeah. and they're like addiction medicine is not well funded it's not well supported it's really heavily stigmatized there aren't a ton of people in the field and i would love to see that change yeah yeah, and then that was, I mean, him going off of his addiction meds is sort of like... Well, they were his antidepressants. They weren't... They or not weren't, addiction meds, rather. His antidepressants, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but that was like sort of the precipitating event, right? Um, like two years before he died, um, he, he went off his medication and had like a really bad depressive crisis and then tried to get back on his medication and it wasn't quite working for him. Yeah. Um, and, and then he died, you yeah. know? Um, so uh, there is, there is the, there are these sort of hardliners out there who say things that I think are actually really harmful (laughs) and like, it's, it's, it's not just, you know, the Miley Cyruses of the world who are like, weed is good. (laughs) It's also the people who are like, well, you can't be on anything. You, you can't, you can't take antidepressants. You can't take, um, you know, some of these drugs that, that block opiates, for example. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 the still societal treatment of 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 do, using drugs as a moral failing works both ways right because that can you know uh prevent people from getting help for addictions that they have oh absolutely and it can also be what draws people to starting drugs because it is bad because it's uh it is something that morally failed people do and they feel morally failed and like they want to uh, enact that in some way. Um, right. Um, is this where we are going to transition to Lana Del Rey? Uh, yeah. I mean, we could talk about a lot of, <laughs> we were talking a little about the, about the weekend too. I, I find them to be two sides of a similar coin. Um, and we could talk about Miley as well. I mean, the, the, <laughs> uh, one of the things we were also talking about was just like who, who feels comfortable in our society going and getting help for an addiction versus people who either don't feel comfortable with it, don't have the resources to pay for rehab, all these different things. Um, or, I mean, or, yeah, not only don't feel comfortable, but, like, literally cannot afford it, you right. know? Or, yeah, like, yeah. can't find a bed. Like, you know, that's another one of the things in this essay that was just, like, heartbreaking is that they have a backlog of people who want to get into this program. Like, yeah. there, are, there are just, you know, and then you have these treatment centers that are not actually... I mean, they're really profit centers is what they are. Gross as it is to say it. Right. Like, yeah, you know, like they're they're not using evidence based medicine. They're just trying to fill the beds and like get reimbursed from Medicare or Medicaid or, um, you know, in the case of the very swanky ones, just, you know, take take people's money. It's a resort. Um, yeah. And like that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the thing the, the main thing for me 
with Miley Cyrus, and then I won't talk about Miley Cyrus anymore. And I wrote about this at length at the like a couple years ago, because um, I had been like relatively supportive of her and her transformation and her like you know branching out, even though you know there were obviously big problems with it, especially like problems of racial appropriation and stuff. But I thought like. It was interesting to watch somebody try to, like, come into their own in a way that was that they could own completely. And I was generally supportive of that. I think the thing that really rubbed me the wrong way, not I think, I know the thing that really rubbed me the wrong way was um, when she got into a, like, Internet feud for about a week with uh, Sinead O'Connor. Oh, Um, God. (laughs) Yeah. Which uh, and 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 Sinead kind of was uh, coming at her with a lot of, you know, uh, second wave feminism type ideas about like don't be a prostitute for the industry, which you know some of those things, you know I I I did, I'm not into slut shame or anything, but there are ways where it's like oh Miley is doing that that's very profitable for some people that really helps some people out some dudes in suits like um but you know whatever you can still do whatever you want but just be aware of like who's benefiting from it um but you know so most of Sinead's stuff I didn't really. I didn't really agree with necessarily. Uh, But Miley's response, instead of just ignoring it, which, you know, we learned this with Drake and Meek Mill, you can also just ignore people who are calling you out. That works fine, too. But uh, she went back into Sinead O'Connor's Twitter archive and found a bunch of tweets she had sent out when she was uh, having a a suicidal episode. And... um, she went to she went on Twitter for whatever reason and was like asking for help from people um, because she was just having a breakdown, having a, an episode and uh, and holding that. And this was when a bunch of stuff was happening with Amanda Bynes, too, uh, where she went on her 5150 hold and, you know, was diagnosed with having bipolar disorder Um and made this just made like a joke that was like before there was Amanda Bynes, there was Sinead O'Connor. Oh um, God! Yeah, and it's it was so gross and like so uh, it, it, it kind of hypocritical, really, because you can talk about like being so crazy and doing Molly and and smoking weed and partying and stuff, but then it's like somebody. <laughs> those are not unrelated to mental illness like no. like not at all like on a on a wide scale scheme of things like maybe not for you Miley Cyrus like 21 year old like person who has always grown up with means but um but even recreational substance abuse is is completely tied in with mental illness and like saying that somebody is should not be taken seriously because they uh suffered or are suffering from a mental disorder was like very um that's so harmful of, yeah i was done with her at that point i was that's like so whatever. harmful like, like i mean like listen if there's anybody out here who's listening um and who's struggling with their mental health get to a therapist it's gonna suck it will it'll be tough it's gonna require some bravery do it people love you you matter yeah don't leave us <laughs> and it's not it's not it's not there's nothing As to so be ashamed many people of. do it. So many people do it. It's like if people do it without it being a, a like a crisis point. Yeah. It's just like working out or something. And and you know and there but even if you are at a crisis point, like that happens. That's normal. Mm-hmm. That happens to a lot of people and you are not alone and this is not crazy and it's it's just find help. Like talk yeah. to somebody. It doesn't even have to be a professional. Just tell someone how you're feeling. Yeah. Like well, find somebody safe. This did become a very special episode. <laughs> I feel really strongly about this. No, I mean, no, like, me too. That's why that upset me. And that's why I still feel like I didn't bring that up in the piece that I wrote about Miley Cyrus because I feel like I've harped on that a lot in the past. But that's if I ever seem irrationally unfavorable about her, that's that's at the bottom of it, really. Like, yeah, whatever. Like, be an attention whore. Like, go go out there and wear whatever you want and talk about whatever drugs you want. But, like, once you start... Yeah, like Britney well, this whole... Spears is has had mental illness issues, and like right. she worked with Britney on her album. It's like you cannot stigmatize mental illness if you are an artist. No, certainly it not. Does not work. And like, and and I, I guess what makes me really angry about it is like, you know, 
people with mental illness are already struggling enough and they're doing it invisibly. Like, you know, if I like if I, for instance, twist my ankle, like you can see that, you know, you can see me limping. You can see that my ankle is swollen, whatever. If I am having a depressive episode, that may be invisible to you. You have no idea who you're surrounded with at any time. You could be dealing with someone who's really struggling and have no idea. And when you say something like that, you are making things worse for that person and not better. You're kicking their ankle. You know? Yeah. This is why I don't care for Lana Del Rey and her whole shtick, besides the fact that I am not impressed with her as a singer. Um, Because, like, whatever, there are plenty of terrible singers out there. Like, fine. But, like, her whole, like, cocaine Ophelia thing, um, Mm -hmm. like, really just drives me bats because it glamorizes substance abuse in a way that it should not be glamorized. And, like, the whole, like, this whole... There is this very American thing, and it's always women we want to watch do it, where we want to watch women be train wrecks, and we want to watch them... We don't We don't try to help them. So, like, Amanda Bynes would be a case in point. Right. We want to watch them, like, drive themselves into the wall as hard as possible. Yeah. And before that, we had, you know... Um, Prozac Nation. We had Courtney Love. Like this is mm-hmm. something that we've been watching for a while. This has been yeah. going on culturally for as long as I've been around, and Lana like probably went on longer tour with Courtney Love. Yeah, well, exactly because she wanted that mystique. I mean, yeah. it's gross. She is gross. <laughs> Lana or Courtney Love? I mean, no, yeah. Lana is gross. <laughs> Courtney, like I, you know, listen. Like if your husband and you know your beloved husband commits suicide, and <laughs> yeah, you're going to get a lot of passes from me. Um, like yeah. if you behave badly following your hub, your husband's death by suicide, you, I, I will cut you a lot of slack. Yeah. Um, that's a lot to deal with. Um, so a couple things about Lana. I mean, she is, if you want to take her word for it and she says this multiple times and I've never seen any evidence to indicate the contrary besides her lyrics. If you want to take her lyrics, literally, um, she's been clean since the age of 18. She, um, went to rehab for the first time at the age of 14 and uh, and spent a lot of her teenage years kind of in and out of it. And uh, so she hasn't done anything since she turned 18. I feel like the more time I spend with her music, I feel like the way that she talks about drugs in in it is sort of a it's almost like a it's like her, it's like lyrical methadone. Like she's enacting these fantasies of of something that probably she really misses like most addicts would tell you that they miss doing the thing like if you really want to be like just blunt about it um you know that's that's something that's not going to go away that's why you're still an addict even if you're not using anymore right you might be a dry alcoholic but you're still an alcoholic yeah um so a lot of it feels that way to me is just like this fixation on something that is no longer a part of her life. Um, I also just find it to be I, I feel like I mean, a lot of what I have to say, I think say about her in this regard is to do with um, is like easily counterpointed by The Weeknd. He was also performed at the VMAs um, and has like I think still has the number one song in the country right now, which is a giant cocaine metaphor yeah um it's interesting to me how i think they are both very similar in the way that they create these sort of semi-fictional personas uh that are very drug informed um i think it's interesting that people will take abel tesfaye's i think that's how you pronounce his last name uh uh take him a like more at face value um and they'll dismiss Lana's work as being fake or frivolous or something. Well, I mean, yeah, except that she the thing is, uh, there, there are sort of two separate things going on. And one of them has obviously to do with sexism and the tropes that we expect women to enact in public versus the tropes we expect men to enact in public. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like and and Lana plays with them in a way that I think is supposed to be knowing, but doesn't seem very knowing to me, I guess is what is what my beef with her is. Right. Like she like all she's crooning in her sexy baby voice and virtually all of her lyrics are practically I'm a sexy baby and I'm doomed. You know, like that is that is the Lana Del Rey song right there. I just wrote it for you. Did like, you see the did you see the lyric web that I made during Hack Week of Lana Del Rey's 
I did not. I am gonna have to check that out. So the biggest, like, so there are all these hubs. It's it's songs and 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 lyrical like phrases or words that are very Lana Del Rey and 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 all the different times that those show up in each other. So it's this big web. The number one biggest hub on, and I didn't put baby in there. If I had put baby in there, it would have been all over the place. But baby, it sure would have. It's a fairly like it's also a fairly normal song or a fairly very fairly normal word for pop lyrics. So that's why I didn't put. Because sometimes it's like I'm a baby, and sometimes it's like oh baby, like yeah, totally says that. Uh, but uh, it is daddy. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> Um, no, but I mean, like, that that totally plays into this whole long, long, long history of women being infantilized and less than and, like, being like children. Like, it's not a coincidence that women and children get grouped together for women and children first, you know? So, like, you know, like, if you're going to, like, if you're going to play with that trope, play with it. Don't embody it. Jesus. Like, you think I can't tell the difference? I think there is something interesting about, uh... I mean, she talks about it in interviews, and it's also very apparent in her songs. Like, she is a sub. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, to have somebody who's, for the most part, writing all of her own lyrics and, like, creating her own persona, which I don't like. That's something that's also people like to debate about all the time. Like, if you look deeply enough into it, there's no... There's, it makes zero sense for anybody to create the persona that Lana has created for herself. Um like an, a third party creating that for her. That's just not like her second album is completely unmarketable. And uh, but, you know, she still wanted to do it. I think it's interesting to have somebody who is a singer songwriter who's like kind of an auteur in a way, like as far as creating a persona, creating a lyrical world, um, fully embody that idea of a submissive woman, but go deep into it. It's not for the benefit of men like way more girls like Lana than guys like like guys aren't like leering at Lana Del Rey videos and be like Haha, she said she, she said she was a sexy baby Haha. like I, girls are finding something poetic about accepting something like I, I don't know I, I, I just I don't want to go too well again it's like Ophelia right like you're 14 how many roles are offered to you in Shakespeare how many <laughs> roles can you play Right. And it's like the thing that I guess that I don't get is like you have all of these options available to you and all of these ways to express yourself, including as a submissive woman. I, You know, like that's mm-hmm. not in and of itself. That does not resign you <laughs> to, to Lana Del Rey like that. Right. You know, um, and like the thing that the thing that I just like, like it's like literally the most boring role for women that I can possibly imagine is the doomed sad lady because that's the one that always shows up in literature over and over and over and over and over and over again do you like think for it's centuries I, I agree with that in general but do you think it's more interesting if it's if it's a woman telling that story or it's a woman telling her own story in that way but I mean we've always accepted that stories from women like that's the story that we've accepted from women over and over and over again for centuries also like the you know you're like you're allowed to do that but you're not allowed to do that and be successful like you know like think about Mm. like um like i'm thinking like anais nin for example right like Mm -hmm. she has her own daddy issues including incest um but like you know like that that was what she was known for more so than the quality of her writing which is in fact quite good Um, and like you have, you have these tropes again over and over that you're seeing Lana pull on and draw from that are really, 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 really old and that have a really old tradition. And I just don't see her adding anything like Mm. women have been telling their story in the submissive, you know, I can't get out of this, this baby trap vein for, for quite some time. So like, I just, I don't see what's new, interesting or unique about it unless you're like a teenage girl in the middle of Iowa, which we both were. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who, who didn't have access to anything else. And like, so in some, in some respects, like, yeah, of course, because that's, that's something that, that is familiar to these women, these, these girls, you know, hmm. but like, I just, I really like have more ambition, please. <laughs> well, she fires a machine gun in her last music video. So, uh, so she is she wearing, aggressive. is she wearing a flowy white dress while she does it? Yes, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> I rest my case. Um, I mean, you know, I'll I'll let you know when she she does her look over in, in the image of Imperi Imper- or wait, wait, what's her name? Uh Furiosa. Furiosa. Yeah. Imperator Furiosa. Like I mean it's just you know, like 
I want to see other roles for women. Like, I want to see other roles for women. I just want more than than sexy, sad baby Ophelia. I just want more I than that. It. I get it. I um, we should probably wrap up. Uh, but but <laughs> we uh, before we do, uh, we wanted to to dedicate a little something to the memory of uh, a person we lost this week. Very sadly. So um, Oliver Sacks, as as many of you probably know, um, died on Sunday. Um, and he was widely beloved, um, not just in the science community, uh, but by everybody, I think. Um, and first sort of came to attention in 1973 for his book called Awakenings. Um, and it's about a, a group of people um, with an unusual form of encephalitis at Beth Abraham Hospital in the Bronx. And... He starts his career there, and these these patients, many of them had been catatonic as a result of sleeping sickness, and so he gives them the drug L-DOPA, which is widely used now to treat Parkinson's disease. And some responded, um, and they, they, like, woke up. Um, And so he used this book to, like, sort of talk about how this happened, and, of course, the sad sad part is that for a lot of them, L-DOPA wore off like they, it was no longer useful for them and they eventually retreated back into their catatonic states wow. um, but that, there was a movie made of that um, and then in 1995 he wrote a book called the Anthrop- An Anthropologist on Mars which is about Temple Grandin um, mm-hmm. among other people um, but basically about people who are uh, not neurotypical who thrive anyway um, you know people who are not what we would consider to be normal but who mm-hmm. are obviously like really phenomenal Mm -hmm. (laughs) people and um so temple grandin uh like her her sort of career um was was already in in place um working with animals uh when oliver sacks wrote about her and as a result of um an anthropologist on mars um you know uh she ended up writing her autobiography and then went on to um uh of course be the the star (laughs) <laughs> uh, of a, um, a biographical adaptation for HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also um, was involved with uh, V.S. Ramachandran, who, uh, you know how uh, for people with phantom limbs, if you put a, a mirror in front of their good limb and they're having phantom limb pain and you have them move the good limb, that'll uh-huh. trick their brain into um, into to releasing like the clenched fist or whatever that's causing them pain. Wow. That he was another um, he was another person who Sachs really very heavily supported. The two of them worked together. So he he was not only you know this author um, of a number of best selling books and sort of this widely beloved um, writer doctor. He also was somebody who um, clearly cared for the, the careers um, and the lives of the people around him. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why if if you noticed um, the sort of outpouring of grief. Um, I think for a lot of people who follow science, he was in some ways our really beloved uncle. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and, I, and like for people who don't follow science as closely, but like you know know his writing still because he was able to relate it in a really um, understandable way. Yeah, I mean, I actually I have a couple of things that I um, am going to read, uh, and one of them is uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, um, which was <laughs> how can you resist that title, right? Yeah. Um, but it's like if if you like surrealism and you like Borges, this is like yeah. the real life version of that. These are yeah. these are the people that of the Borges stories who are the people who are trapped in the endless libraries or who can no longer recognize faces or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, so there's there's something very literary about him as well. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's a tremendous loss. Yeah, yeah, he will be missed. Um, well, uh, we're gonna close out with a reading. Uh, from Liz. Uh, and thank you so much for listening to our podcast this week. Dr. P was a musician of distinction, well known for many years as a singer, and then at the local school of music as a teacher. It was here, in relation to his students, that certain strange problems were first observed. Sometimes a student would present himself and Dr. P would not recognize him, or specifically would not recognize his face. The moment the student spoke, he would be recognized by his voice. Such incidents multiplied, causing embarrassment, perplexity, fear, and sometimes comedy. For not only did Dr. P. increasingly fail to see faces, but he saw faces when there were no faces to see. 
genially, Magoo-like, when in the street he might pat the heads of water hydrants and parking meters, taking those to be the heads of children. He would amiably address carved knobs on the furniture and be astounded when they did not reply. At first, these odd mistakes were laughed off as jokes, not least by Dr. P himself, had he not always had a quirky sense of humor and been given to zen-like paradoxes and jests. His musical powers were as dazzling as ever. He did not feel ill. He had never felt better. The mistakes were so ludicrous, and he's so ingenious, that they could hardly be serious or betoken anything serious. When the notion of there being something the matter did not emerge until three years later, when diabetes developed... Well aware that diabetes could affect his eyes, Dr. P consulted an ophthalmologist who took a careful history and examined his eyes closely. There's nothing wrong with your eyes, the doctor concluded, but there is trouble with the visual parts of your brain. You don't need my help. You must see a neurologist. As a result of this referral, Dr. P came to me. It was obvious when a few seconds of meeting him that there was no trace of dementia in the ordinary sense. He was a man of great cultivation and charm who talked well and fluently with imagination and humor. I couldn't think why he'd been referred to our clinic. And yet there was something a bit odd. He faced me as he spoke, was oriented towards me, and yet there was something the matter. It was difficult to formulate. He faced me with his ears, I came to think, but not with his eyes. These, instead of looking, gazing at me, taking me in in the normal way, made sudden strange fixations on my nose, on my right ear, down to my chin, up to my right eye, as if nothing, noting, even studying these individual features, but not seeing my whole face, its changing expressions, me as a whole. I'm not sure I fully realized it at this time. There were just teasing strangeness, some failure in the normal interplay of gaze and expression. He saw me, he scanned me, and yet, what seems to be the matter, I asked him at length. Nothing that I know of, he replied with a smile, but people seem to think there's something wrong with my eyes. But you don't recognize any visual problems. No, not directly, but I occasionally make mistakes. I left the room briefly to talk to his wife. When I came back, Dr. P was sitting placidly by the window, attentive, listening rather than looking out. Traffic, he said, street sounds, distant trains, they make a sort of symphony, do they not? You know Honegger's Pacific 234? What a lovely man, I thought to myself. How can there be anything seriously the matter? Would he permit me to examine him? I stilled my disquiet, his perhaps, too, in the soothing routine of a neurological exam, muscle strength, coordination, reflexes, tone. It was while examining his reflexes, a trifle abnormal on the left side, that the first bizarre experience occurred. I had taken off his left shoe and scratched the sole of his foot with a key, a frivolous-seeming but essential test of a reflex, and then excusing myself to screw my ophthalmoscope together, left him to put on his shoe himself. To my surprise, a minute later, he had not done this. Can I help? I asked. Help what? Help whom? Help you put on your shoe. Ah, he said. I had forgotten the shoe. Adding, sotto voce, the shoe? The shoe? He seemed baffled. Your shoe, I said. Put it, perhaps you'd put it on. He continued to look downwards, though not at the shoe, with an intense but misplaced concentration. Finally, his gaze settled on his foot. This is my shoe, yes? Did I mishear? Did I missee? Uh, my eyes, he said, and put a hand to his foot. This is my shoe, No. No, it is not. That is your foot. There is your shoe. Ah, I thought that was my foot. Was he joking? Was he mad? Was he blind? If this was one of his strange mistakes, it was the strangest mistake I had ever come across. I helped him on with his shoe, his foot, to avoid further complication. Dr. P seemed untroubled, indifferent, maybe amused. I resumed my examination. His visual acuity was good. He had no difficulty seeing a pin on the floor, though sometimes he missed it if it was placed to his left. He saw all right, but what did he see? I opened out a copy of the National Geographic magazine and asked him to describe some pictures in it. His responses here were very curious. His eyes would dart from one thing to another, picking up tiny features, individual features, as they had done with my face. A striking brightness, a color, a shape would arrest his attention and elicit comment, but in no case did he ever get the scene as a whole. He failed to see the whole, seeing only details, which he spotted like blips on a radar screen. He never entered into relation with the picture as a whole, never faced, so to speak, its physiognomy. Physiognomy, excuse me. He had no sense of a landscape or scene. I showed him the cover, an unbroken expanse of Sahara dunes. What do you see here? I asked. I see a river, he said, and a little guest house with its terrace on the water. People are dining out on the terrace. I see colored parasols here and there. He was looking, if looking was the right word, uh, right off of the cover into midair and confabulating non-existent features, as if the absence of features in the actual picture had driven him to imagine the river and terrace and colored parasols. I must have looked aghast, but he seemed to think he had done rather well. There was a hint of smile on his face. He also appeared to have decided that the examination was over and started to look around for his hat. 
He reached out his hand and took a hold of his wife's head and tried to lift it off to put it on. He had apparently mistaken his wife for a hat. His wife looked as if she was used to such things. Um, the story goes on, um, and it turns out uh, that, that Sachs doesn't get a chance to properly examine the man or find out what's wrong with him. Uh, but at that point, I was hooked. Um, and so I read the whole thing because this is um, – I wouldn't have put it this way at the time because I, I, I hadn't read a lot of surrealist literature. But this is essentially um, uh, a kind of non-fictional surrealism. Um, and it is, it is powerful in, in that regard. I'm going to read you uh, one more um, um, extract of his. It's from his more recent book, Hallucinations, which is about exactly what you think it's about. Uh, and includes um, uh, a chapter called Altered States, which is about drugs, um, which Sachs, of course, has done. Um, and uh, the sort of the... Um, the the intro here is you know he's he's talking with 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 friends um, about uh, what what Huxley had described um, in the doors of perception. Thoughts like this tipped the balance for me, along with the feeling that I would never really know what hallucinogenic drugs were like unless I tried them. I started with cannabis. A friend in Topanga Canyon, where I lived at the time, offered me a joint. I took two puffs and was transfixed by what happened then. I gazed at my hand, and while it seemed to feel my visual field getting larger at the same time moving away from me, finally, it seemed to me, I could see a hand stretched across the universe. Light years are parsecs in length. It still looked like a living human hand, yet this cosmic hand also somehow seemed like the hand of God. That must have been some pretty good weed. My first pot experience was marked with a mix of neurological and the divine. On the West Coast in the early 1960s, LSD and Morning Glory seeds were readily available, so I sampled those too. But if you want to try a really far-out experience, my friends on Muscle Beach told me, try Artane. I found this surprising, for I knew that Artane, a synthetic drug allied to belladonna and used in modest doses, two to three tablets a day, for the treatment of Parkinson's disease, and that such drugs in large quantities could cause a delirium. Such deliria have long been observed with accidental ingestion of plants like deadly nightshade, thorn apple, and black henbane. But would a delirium be fun or informative? Would one be in a position to observe the aberrant functioning of one's brain to appreciate its wonder? Go on, urge my friends. Just take 20 of them. You'll still be in partial control. So one Sunday morning, I counted out 20 pills, washed them down with a mouthful of water, and sat down to await the effect. Would the world be transformed, newborn, as Huxley had described it in The Doors of Perception and as I myself had experienced with mescaline and LSD? Would there be waves of delicious, voluptuous feeling? Would there be anxiety, disorganization, paranoia? I was prepared for all of these, but none of them occurred. I had a large mouth, dry pupils. Oops, excuse me. <laughs> I had a dry mouth, large pupils, and found it difficult to read, but that was all. There were no psychic effects whatsoever, most disappointing. I did not know exactly what I had expected, but I expected something. I was in the kitchen putting the kettle on for tea when I heard a knocking at my front door. It was my friends Jim and Kathleen. They would stop, drop round on a Sunday morning. Come in. The door's open, I called out as they settled themselves in the living room. I asked, how do you like your eggs? Jim liked them sunny side up, he said. Kathy preferred them over easy. We chatted away while I sizzled their ham and eggs. There were low-slinging doors between the kitchen and the living room, so we could hear each other easily. Then five minutes later, I shouted, everything's ready, put their ham and eggs on a tray, and walked into the living room and found it completely empty. No Jim, no Kathy, no sign they had ever been there. I was so staggered I almost dropped the tray. It had not occurred to me for an instant that Jim's and Kathy's voices, their presences, were unreal, hallucinatory. We'd had a friendly, ordinary conversation, just as we usually had. Their voices were the same as always. There had been no hint until I opened the swinging doors and found the living room empty that the whole conversation, at least their side of it, had been completely invented by my brain. I was not only shocked, but rather frightened, too. With LSD and other drugs, I knew it was happening. The world would look different, feel different. There would be a characteristic of a special, extreme mode of experience. But my conversation with Jim and Kathy had no special quality. It was entirely commonplace, with nothing to mark it as a hallucination. I thought about schizophrenics conversing with their voices, but typically the voices of the schizophrenia are mocking or accusing, not talking about ham and eggs and the weather. <laughs> Careful, Oliver, I said to myself. Take yourself at hand. Don't let this happen again. Sunken thought, I slowly ate my ham and eggs, Jim's and Kathy's too, and then decided to go down to the beach where I would see the real Jim and Kathy and all my friends and enjoy my, a swim in an idle afternoon. 
I was pondering all of this when I became conscious of a whirring noise above me. It puzzled me for a moment, and then I realized it was a helicopter preparing to descend, and that it contained my parents, who, wanting to make a surprise visit, had flown in from London and, arriving in Los Angeles, chartered a helicopter to bring them to Topanga Canyon. I rushed to the bathroom, had a quick shower, put on a clean shirt and pants, the most I could do in the three or four minutes before they arrived. The throb of the engine was almost definitely loud, so I knew that the helicopter must have landed on the flat rock beside my house. I rushed out, excitedly, to greet my parents, but the rock was empty, there was no helicopter in sight, and the huge pulsing noise of its engine had abruptly cut off. The silence and the emptiness, the disappointment, reduced me to tears. I had been so joyfully excited, and now there was nothing at all. I went back into the house and put the kettle on for another cup of tea when my attention was caught by a spider on the kitchen wall. As I drew nearer to look at it, the spider called out, Hello. It did not seem at all strange to me that a spider should say hello any more than it seemed strange to Alice when the white rabbit spoke. I said hello yourself. And with this, we started a conversation, mostly on rather technical matters of analytic philosophy. Perhaps this direction was suggested by the spider's opening comment. Did I think that Bertrand Russell had exploded Frege's paradox? Or perhaps it was his voice, pointed, incisive, and just like Russell's voice, which I had heard on the radio, but also hilariously as it had been parodied in Beyond the Fringe. And there's a footnote. When, decades later, I told this story to my friend Tom Eisner, an entomologist, I mentioned the spider's philosophical tendencies and Russellian voice. He nodded sagely and said, yes, I know the species. Um, anyway, if you are not familiar with Oliver Sacks' work, um, I, I strongly recommend it. You don't need a technical background to enjoy it, as, as I'm sure you've heard. Um, and he really uh, does a remarkable job of opening the wonder of science to a layperson and also... How weird is the human mind? Um, that is that is his media. Um, so anyway, in honor of Oliver Sacks, I give you this. We'll be back in two weeks.